Welcome to Kyperian Commentary. I am your host, Yuri Brito, and this is the 89th episode of Kyperian Commentary. We've been doing this for uh, now over a decade, and it's been a, a tremendous a benefit not only to us writers and contributors to Kyperian Commentary, but it's been joyful to see so many benefit from the labors of Abraham Kuyper. And in many ways, even though Kuyper is a, a form of a resurgent a figure in modern discourse. It's been good to see the labors of Kuiper applied to sort of the day-to-day -day life of, of parish life, which is really the ultimate goal of our Kuiperian project, which is to make uh, Kuiper an approachable Dutch theologian, but ultimately something that can benefit the local church and the local parish. And this is why I'm here with uh, Reverend Dustin Messer, now Dr. Reverend Dr. Dustin Messer. Dr. Uh, Dr. Messer, delight to see you again, my brother. Dr. Brito, very good to be with you, man. Yeah, well, 89 episodes, and I think um, probably half of them have been just me and you talking over a host of issues in these last many years, and I have uh, enjoyed every single one of our um, com uh, communications and our dialogue has been really fruitful. I'm very excited. A lot of the focus has been on me for some time because I was in the deadline here finishing work, but now you've also completed your work. And we're very happy. I'm sure you're very happy to be at that stage. How do you feel right now? Man, it is that, you know, you and I talked about you finishing. It really is such a relief just to have this thing you've been working towards for so many years behind you. And uh, it's in some ways it's anticlimactic, you know, because there's just other things to do now. It's not like there's a big party every day, uh, but it is it is a relief for sure to have, you know, a big milestone behind you. Yeah, I was asked uh, when I completed my uh, my defense, I said, what are you going to do now with life? I said, well, the same things that I was doing before, except now I get my weekends back. So, uh, that's a, a benefit of completing this long-term project you've been carrying along in your soul for this long. Well, congratulations on your accomplishment. I want to talk a little bit about your, your dissertation at this point here. Well, give me a little bit of synopsis of what you attempted to do with this large project. Yeah, well, it was birthed out of sort of two realizations. One was, um, so the title of the dissertation is Micro Christendom's Cultural Renewal on a Human Scale. And these are the two realizations uh, that, that I thought through in the dissertation. One was, we're not that good just as human beings of affecting sort of macro change, you know, or maybe a better way to say it is we're, we're pretty good at affecting macro change, but it's usually not the change we expect. So like the classic example is, you know, the rise in teen pregnancy, the huge spike in uh, American teen pregnancy doesn't really come from sort of libertine theolo uh, theologians or philosophers or so forth. It comes from the invention of uh, the automobile. You know, a car became sort of a portable hideaway for teenagers. Now, Henry Ford does not have in his head any sort of promiscuity or, right. you know, is selling this to teenage kids but that macro change comes from this cultural innovation well it just turns out that most of our sort of large national political revolutions come from very counterintuitive sources um, and that kind of thing and so churches spend a lot of their energy trying to affect what happens in dc sometimes with good fruit Oftentimes, uh, you know, change comes from some other surprising source. That was the first realization. The second realization, it came from a lot of the work done 
by some sociologists connected with the University of Chicago. I went into the dissertation sort of thinking, you know, there's globalism, there's everybody's on their phone, computers. How important are localities today? And I kind of thought probably not that important. My wife and I have moved, you know, for school and ministry and so forth, a lot of different places, a lot of different states. So how important are neighborhoods? Well, people like Robert Sampson and others uh, do some studies that fairly conclusively show actually neighborhoods, uh, one's immediate built environment has a huge effect on the citizens that live there. It's not just that the virtue of the citizens affects the neighborhoods, though that does happen, but that the neighborhoods sort of cultivate virtue or the lack thereof in individuals. And so just as I was thinking of those two things, number one, what we do on the human scale really does matter. Number two, what we do sort of in a national political level doesn't bear the fruit that we hope it would. I started thinking, well, how should the church respond to these two things? And just kind of as a last point, sadly, a lot of churches say either we're going to be culture warriors who devote all of our time and attention to DC politics, or we're going to have sort of an Anabaptist posture. Well, we're going to do pious things on Sunday and not engage the culture when the reality is, and this is what I argue in the, the dissertation and the, the forthcoming project on it, is that actually churches should pursue a micro Christendom, an embodied structured, this is a very Kyperian point, yes. lived, uh, renewed cultural experiment on a human scale. And so we should build these kind of micro Christendoms um, all around. And so I, you and I were talking just before I gave a talk at uh, Calvin College a couple of years ago, and someone came up to me afterwards, I hadn't thought of it in this way, but they said, what you've really done is given a public theology to the Benedict option. And I, I hope that's right, because, you know, uh, the Benedict option, I think, does have some really um, compelling insights and good prescription, but my hope is that it gives uh, the Benedict option a public theology, a missiology, to say, yes, we need to think more locally, but also we need to think more transformationally vis-a-vis -vis our neighborhoods. Yeah, fantastic. The the you know, remarkable feedback that uh, we've received over the years over the, the Rob Dreher uh, labor is obviously a result of the fact that we have all thought through these issues, but now it was there articulated in a very objective way, right? Come together, form these local bodies and essentially re-educate the Christian populace, forsake politics as we know it, and prepare yourselves. But the Kyperian vision, I think, I think in many ways you have offered a, a real brilliant synopsis of how we think through Hyperianism, and there's a language you use in one of your papers, and I think it was uh, Robert Sampson, I think, about collective efficacy. How does that play out into local neighborhoods? What's the purpose of collective efficacy? How does it uh, manifest itself? Yeah, this is one of the really fascinating sort of sociological points that I stumbled across. So here's a way you could gauge collective efficacy before defining it. Here's how you could gauge it. Uh, you could put a stamp on a piece of mail and then put that piece of mail next to a mailbox. And then you track, will anybody in that neighborhood who walks by the mailbox return that piece of mail to the mailbox? So sociologists do this. They take uh, post uh, postage, mark mail, 
put it next to mailbox and they track who in a neighborhood will return the mail. So the, you know, return rate range from something like zero to 82% or something like that. What's interesting is they then correlated that return rate to things like crime in the neighborhood, um, childhood diabetes, uh, all sorts of things that we would sort of recognize as, okay, so is this a healthy neighborhood or an unhealthy neighborhood? And the conclusion of that study is, if you live in a neighborhood where your neighbors see a, a piece of mail on the ground and they return it, you are going to be more healthy, literally, physically healthy. And then as Christians, I think we can even say spiritually healthy to a degree in the sense that, you know, if you're uh, another sort of great way to gauge collective efficacy would be, do you live in a neighborhood where if kids are skipping school, uh, will you as a neighbor um, uh, intervene? We talk to the kids, we ask the kids, we know the teachers uh, and that sort of thing. So collective efficacy is just this idea that a neighborhood is connected and involved and rooted. It's related to what a lot of people uh, may have heard is the broken window theory. Um, yeah. that, you know, if a window is broken in an apartment building, you know, slowly the rest of the neighborhood will devolve. There's some problems, I think we could say, with that. But there is this keen insight, which is that order breeds order, disorder breeds disorder. So if you're someone who passes the piece of mail and doesn't return it, that's a sign of disorder. Now, we as Christians think that Christ brings order, cohesion. He is the logos, the word. He brings a logic to um, very lived things, not just our spiritual life, but our whole life, our businesses, the teleology of creation. Therefore, it shouldn't, shouldn't it, that a neighborhood that has been evangelized and Christendomized, which is just to say lived their faith in a very James sort of way, you know, it, their faith has moved from the head and the heart to the hands, that that neighborhood should have a very lived, cohesive, um, structure to it. So that was one of the real helpful, I think, um, things I discovered as I was researching and writing. So, so essentially there is a, um, how do I phrase it, a, a reciprocity of charity that determines the collective efficacy of a community. Exactly right. Yeah, it's a great way to say it. Um, the uh, additional question here, I think, that, that comes to mind, when I, was, when I was in seminary, I had a lot of um, Dutch reform friends, and uh, you probably experienced that at Covenant, but one of the things they always mentioned was that the, the growing up was a very unique, um, unique vision, right? People didn't drive half an hour to church. They just walked to the neighborhood, uh, CRC church or whatever Dutch congregation was. Is that vision uh, something that you, you see at, as a, um, as an ideal, or do you see it as we're, are we past that kind of, um, that kind of world in light of the diversification of ecclesiastical, you know, denominations? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. It's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, too, isn't it? Is it that the multiplication of denominations breeds this kind of consumeristic impulse, right, or is right. consumeristic impulse uh, breeds this sort of view of church? Um, I'll say somebody who served on my uh, committee and really got me started thinking in these categories is a guy named Eric Jacobson. Yeah. Who wrote a wonderful book called Sidewalks of the Kingdom. And that word sidewalks there says, you know, the automobile gives the Christian an ability to, when they disagree with their elder board, their vestry, their whatever, they can drive to, you know, across town. And he sort of contrasts sidewalks with parking lots. 
and uh, and really identifies a lot of the ills of modern consumeristic evangelicalism with uh, with the automobile and the ability to to drive to a different part of town. Guess what I would want to say is that counterintuitively, uh, our neighborhoods still really do affect us. So there's a sense in which we can't really opt out. Now we can have a you know a garage and we can drive into the garage, shut the garage door. We can make ourselves feel siloed from our neighbors, um, but even there, we are having you know a, a, an adverse effect upon our neighbors. We're contributing to uh, the devolution of our neighborhood. So part of my argument would just be to recognize that we're all in a place, we're all in a locality, we're all in a neighborhood. The question is, are we going to contribute to that neighborhood's uh, well-being or detriment? So churches, I think, should really think through, are we trying to just attract sheep from other folds in here, you know, to sort of have the upper hand on the Baptist or the Methodist or whatever? Or are we really seeking the well-being of this particular neighborhood? Now, that's going to require buy-in, of course, where people say we are committed to this parish, to this body. And even when I'm offended, even when we do something, you know, that I don't think we should do, you know, which is just sort of a tactical decision, I'm committed. I'm not going to go um, church shop. But it's going to kind of like you were saying about Rodreyer, uh, that's going to require some articulation to say we're committed to this locality. And though we have an automobile that we could drive across town, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay committed and we're going to seek something uh, that is bigger than the church itself. That is the revivification, the renewal of this city block that when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We can really pray on this block in this neighborhood as it is in heaven. Yeah, that's that's excellent. So the obvious, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's important to know we're not um, you're not articulating it. You're not asking everybody to embrace their inner window barrier. Right. This is a this is something much greater. But there's also a, a form of, uh, you know, Chestertonian localism here that we talked about previously. That's very important to grasp here. And you mentioned this in your piece what Chesterton says the man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world. Um, I have a lot of, let me just articulate a little bit of what I think about that, and then I'd like to hear your um, uh, more formal observations. But it seems to me that when you are deeply invested in a local community, that the concerns of the world, the concerns of D.C., the concerns of whatever's happening around um, you know, geopolitical conversations, they, they're not eliminated, but they're certainly minimized in light of the, uh, the gravitas that is required in your local communities. So if you're invested in a small community, let's say in a small body, a small parish, uh, you know, a typical average American church, 80, 90 people, that your investment there is going to allow you to give so much of your life that the end result is, well, I guess I should give the other 50% to DC. But the end result is that you're not going to have an enormous amount of time to spend on DC politics because your world is essentially embodied in that small community, your children go to school there, your children are homeschooled, whatever, local sports, local everything. I'm just trying to flesh out this, this beautiful idea, which I think is something that needs to be articulated. But overall, I think you mentioned this at the beginning that we have certainly flipped the script here, where DC has taken such a profound role 
in the thinking of modern evangelicals that we have forgotten the placement that God has has for us, as the book of Acts says. God knows where we ought to be, and he knows that our location is not just a random location, but it is a decreto location. We are placed there for a reason for however long God gives us. Any thoughts there? Flesh that out a little more if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. I think that that's a really valuable point. One sociologist with whom I interact in the dissertation talks about it because uh, you could think of DC, but he makes DC a subcategory of what he calls an outer ring. And an outer ring is, um, is uh, a, a group with whom we identify that we sort of uh, choose, we, we choose. So he talks about inner rings and outer rings. An inner ring is the society to which you're born, your immediate family. Your nuclear family. Yeah, an outer ring is DC, but it's the way you relate to DC, you're either a Republican or a Democrat. So then if you make that a subcategory, you say, okay, so what other groups do I sort of voluntarily assent to that I don't necessarily, that think like me, in other words. So it could be a fandom you're a part of, it could be, you know, a, a theological tribe or something like that. What's missing is you mentioned uh, Chesterton's talk about township. You know, uh, Father Richard John Newhouse used to talk about uh, mediating institutions. You know, de Tocqueville was, I have a, my keychain is a de Tocqueville keychain who would talk about these sort of voluntary associations, these middle rings. And Chesterton's point there is the smaller the town, the bigger the worldview you can have. You bump into people who I think that the quote goes have uh, different varieties. The idea is your immediate family thinks a lot like you do, right? They look like you, they talk like you, and maybe there's some friction politically, but basically you are a product of that family. Outer rings you choose, so you think a lot like them. Middle rings, these voluntary associations at the human scale, things like Lions Clubs, things like, you know, HOAs, homeowners associations, obviously the church. These are things you give yourself to and they're just your neighbors. And that's where you really bump into people who think differently than you, look differently uh, than you. And the problem right now is we have so given ourselves to outer rings. Twitter helps with this. Facebook helps with this. You know, generally technology helps pull us to these outer rings. And then we're certainly very tribal in terms of Republican, Democrat. And then our inner rings, interestingly, we have way more contact with our inner ring, the nuclear family today than we did 30 years ago. Adult children talk to their parents way more today than they did even in the 1990s. So what that means is we don't have an infinite amount of time. We're spending more time in these outer rings, more times in the inner rings. It are those voluntary associations, those townships that are being, are those neighborhoods that are being neglected and Christians, it seems to me, you know, uh, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, not the Lions Club, not the HOA, the church. So Christians, I think, need to revigorate, number one, the church, their involvement and, and commitment to the church. And then number two, those rings that sort of come out of the church, like you're, you and I were just talking about, you're involved with a, a classical school there in Pensacola. There, uh, my wife uh, went to an HOA meeting here where we live and uh, walked away as the vice president because she just had a complaint. Like, All right, that's a good complaint. You be yeah. like, you try to fix it. Invest ourselves in this locality and really see, you know, a renewal of those localities. 
And the argument, I think, goes on. And, and uh, the argument is that many of our contemporaries in the evangelical world, the world in which we, we live in generally, have substituted, for example, the church for a host of other uh, replacements, correct? They have substituted the church for uh, traveling leagues or whatever it may be. And is that where we have fundamentally erred in our way? Yeah, I think so. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much the case that uh, Tim Carney wrote a really good book called Alienated America, and he touches on this point just as a reporter who's sort of observing that those replacement to churches are actually just used by the very, very wealthiest. A travel sports league and right. a lot of money, as does, you know, a gym membership and so forth. So you say, well, what are people doing then if they're not going to church anymore? We're in this post-church environment, which we certainly are. They're not going to church. And then these things are for rich people. Who's being hurt by this erosion of the church? The answer is the most vulnerable in society and the poor. Of these, right. Yeah. And so the, the revivification of the church, it's kind of, you know, I mean, on the one hand, there's something the church offers that goes beyond sociology and the sort of just emotional connection that we need. It's more than that, but it's also not less than that. So folks who are in travel leagues have other, you know, country clubs are a great example of replacement churches. In a sense, an emotional sense, they're kind of doing okay. Now we would say there's still a spiritual hunger that they have not said, but they're doing okay in terms of relationships. It's those people who are very invested in outer rings, maybe have a connection to an inner ring, but a lot of times the nuclear family is dissolving and they really are left just as these isolated individuals who are just grasping at this or that identity marker, sadly, often their race, just to make, I need some sort of identity. I need some sort of connection to make me feel whole. And what they really need is this middle ring, this, you know, they, what they need is to be known. And the church there, I think, has a really important role to play in knowing and offering this community that people can find an identity in. Fantastic. So what we what you are articulating is the principle of subsidiary, which is a kind of an organizing principle. Um, even though the world is changing, the, the universality and the ubiquitous nature of the world is changing quite a bit technologically and the social media world has uh, accentuated that point. Is the principle of subsidiary, subsidiary is it still a valuable principle for, um, for Protestant pastors like you and me? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so much of subsidiarity and just Catholic, Catholic social teachings. I went to a Roman Catholic university for my doctorate. Catholic yeah. social teaching generally is, it has various roots, but one way to look at it would be in the French Revolution, you have this Rousseauian, you know, man invents and makes himself and he can decide for himself what he's going to be, right? He's just a blank state, tabula rasa. Right. Catholic social teaching says, no, man is bound to his fellow man. And interestingly, you know, that, that almost sounds, it sounds very communal. Right. And when we think of like, quote unquote, communism or something like that, we think of the state and the individual. Catholic social teaching says, actually, when you just have the state and the individual, far from being communal, that's very, very isolating. And that's very uh, individualistic. 
man is bound to the other in real lived communities. Therefore, if someone is, you know, the classic example for subsidiarity is if someone is drinking, they should have the more and, and knows they shouldn't drive. They should have the virtue, the moral fortitude to stop themselves. But if they won't stop themselves, well, then their husband or wife should take the keys from them that they not drive. If that can't happen, their friends, their church, and then it just keeps growing until eventually, yes, you could get the government involved. But the idea of subsidiarity says man can't invent himself. He is bound to his fellow man. And if that's true, then of course it shouldn't just be Washington, D.C. and the individual. There needs to be real deep ties that are local. And those problems should be pushed down to the absolute most local level. Hopefully the person can have the virtue uh, to help himself. But if not, the family the church. And that's where, you know, you and I have been students of Abraham Kuyper for a long time. That's where Kuyper's sphere sovereignty comes in as well. What sphere is appropriate to help in this area, you know? Uh, so th those subsidiarity and Catholic social teaching generally, I don't think Protestants should, should swallow uncritically, but are really helpful in this age that is so statist, that's so individualistic. Right. Catholic social teaching offers us a way to think, I think, more thoughtfully and on a more human scale in terms of ethics and lots of other things. Is, is, there, is there an eschatological dimension to this conversation as well? It might be really subtle there, but it seems that the an opposing theory would sort of dictate that we embrace a kind of um, uh, a fast, realized eschatology. And I think the reason people are so quickly enamored by the outer ring is because they want quick results. They want things to happen in, in a speedy fashion that would bring about their desire, the justice outcome. Is that is that valuable as a contribution to the conversation there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, and there's a sense, too, in which what I'm arguing for requires a lot of faithfulness you know, just to meet your neighbor and talk to them and so forth. In thousands of little moments, right, Dustin? Thousands. Of, yeah, exactly right. There is a sense in which I'm inviting people to embrace their inner Wendell Berry. Uh, <laughs> whereas the uh, outer ring vision, because there isn't a lot of correlation between what I do today and what happens at a macro cultural level, it really can just be an opinion. It can just be an assent. Oh, I think this or that should happen. But when we pray that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there's a sense in which the fruit is in Christ's hands. He's going to cause it to rain He's and so forth. But we have this very important task that we are to go. And perhaps we will in our city block be like Noah, who proclaims all his day, the judgment of the Lord is coming and does not get a response. Or, you know, uh, the Lord might be pleased to let us see something of the fruit of our labors. But if we're focusing on the macro level, what we can't do is neglect the human agency we've been given to go out and uh, minister to very hurting people. So I do think there's, on the one hand, that over-realized eschatology of just, you know, I want it macro and I want it soon. But there's also kind of a laziness that we want the fruit without the faithfulness. Yeah, so that... Um... If the results don't turn out the way we expect in, in three or four years, it ought not to change our, our deeds, right? 
Yeah, exactly right. And it may be that the macro culture goes one way, but that we have led lives of faithfulness and that we do have a family and a small community who weather the coming storm. And that's where Roger has is his work, I think, has been prescient and and bright. So so the the concluding thought here is that if as sociologists like to uh, make very clear today, Christendom is dead. You know, Christendom, Christianity as we know it, it's is dead. But that doesn't mean that the um, the language that uh, you and the, uh, Dr. Lightheart that micro Christendoms are dead. Is micro Christendoms the next Christendom? In other words, the 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 fruitfulness of local life lived faithfully is that what we would see a hundred years from now? The that which would bear the fruit of larger uh, glory for, for the, the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think so. Or maybe another way to think about it would be it's a step towards uh, a rebuilding of Christendom. Because I'm, a, I'm actually not, I, I think this is to some degree a, um, a bridge argument that I'm making of now that Christendom has fallen, what should Christians do next? Should they have an Anabaptist position where they withdraw should they embrace sort of more of a culture warrior position? My argument is, no, you embody your faith at the local level. But I'm by no means a, uh, one who, you know, there's some folks who I think unthoughtfully talk about rejoicing that Christendom is dead because, well, there are so many fake converts and so forth. And it's, you know, uh, there is a sense in which language like that really assumes that you are comfortable and you aren't the one. In other words, I mean, if you're living in Annabe the antebellum South and you say, well, let's not live out our faith, it's likely that you were the person not in chains. I mean, if you're in chains, you were thinking, I really hope people start living out their faith because what's happening to me, just there's so much disconnect between faith and life. And so folks who just overly, Christians who overly rejoice at the fall of Christendom, I always think to myself, well, you know, Christianity sure has done a lot to protect the vulnerable in our society. So the sort of arrogance for us to say, yeah, I don't want the faith to be lived out. Well, if you're a vulnerable person in society, if you're a woman in the first century, you really do want the faith to be lived out. If you're a slave in the antebellum South, you really do want the faith to be lived out. And likewise, I'm arguing for micro Christendoms, but my prayer uh, would be that the Lord would cause a great reign of the spirit and there would be revival and that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, not because I'm trying to win some big macro culture war, uh, but because I believe that the Christian faith, the true faith, it really is good for all people, especially those vulnerable in society. Well, Kyperian, cheers for those observations, my brother. Uh, Reverend Dr. Dustin Messer, pastor for Faith Formation All Saints in Dallas. Uh, my dear friend, episode 89, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Yuri.